welcome to The Shipping Exchange, a brand new podcast that aims to explore the latest developments in the maritime industry, brought to you by the Honourable Company of Master Mariners and Maritime London, and presented by me, Graham Fisher. In today's episode, we're looking at marine casualties. International shipping transports 90% of world trade, but the very nature of shipping and the environment in which it operates makes the industry one of the most dangerous professions in the world. A recent report from Allianz shows a decline in the number of shipping incidents year on year, with preliminary figures showing a 50% decline in large shipping losses over the last decade. The tougher laws on environmental scrutiny are resulting in record fines being issued for pollution, and geographical risks in areas such as India and South China Seas pose new threats. Furthermore, crew negligence and inadequate vessel maintenance are two increasing areas of risk that must be addressed to protect the lives of seafarers and the marine environment. In this episode, we will look at what more can be done to continue to reduce the number of marine casualties and whether shipping companies, insurers and lawyers will need to adapt to the challenges threatening the future of maritime safety. I'm joined today by two guests, Ian McLean, partner and master mariner at Hill Dickinson, and Andy Bell, marine accident investigator from Stevenson Harwood. What would you say defines a marine casualty in the industry then? I think in the context context of the industry generally, any any incident which results in an unplanned loss, whether that's damage to the vessel, damage to property or pollution of the environment, would count as a, an incident stroke accident uh, and something that needs to be investigated and addressed either internally within the shipping company or for the larger incidents externally by the authorities and possibly with the help of insurers and lawyers. When uh, a marine casualty or a loss takes place, what would you say your your responsibility then is? Is to find out what happened and to gather evidence to allow that to occur. Normally, you have to actually gather the evidence before you can find out what occurred, but that is the aim. Is it is it an easy process, you find? Is it is it something which you regularly come up with similar difficulties? It's quite varied, but common denominator, I suppose, priority is going to be to, to get the witnesses while they are available. That takes up the lion's share of the time. Other things can quite often be obtained later on, but the more that we can get as quickly as possible after the incident has occurred, uh, the better. I think it's important to appreciate there are probably three types of investigations that are going on following a casualty. There's one that Andy's just described, which is the, 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 the lawyer sent by an insurer to do an investigation. And then there will be an investigation in the UK, we would use the Marine Accident Investigation Branch. They're doing an investigation, as all flag states are obliged to do, in order to determine what went wrong, why it went wrong, and whether there are any lessons that can be learned to prevent such a thing from going wrong again in the future. And then there's a remote possibility of some sort of criminal investigation. One of the interesting things, the work that Andy and I do, we will continually come up with the causation. What caused this accident? But that might be different from the causation that applies in the context of the marine accident investigation branch so for instance in a collision we would mostly be interested in what collision regulations were or were not followed whereas the MEIB would probably go further back into fatigue watch keeping passage planning so we need to understand the different purposes of those investigations if you're thinking about recent figures and statistics that come out which says that there's a a global trend which is reducing in regards to the number of accidents would you agree with that statement or do you think there are is it perhaps incidents or marine casualties are falling in certain areas but then increasing in other areas to kind of balance it out for me that that's a difficult question to answer because of necessity um, we become involved when there's a casualty so our, our life is casualties i think it's fair to say that over the last couple of years 
Um, there's been a reduction in casualties, certainly, that's required the assistance or intervention of, of lawyers to go on board and perform investigations. Um, yes, I, I generally find, if I think back to my time as uh, safety management, um, the way that safety management is now a core part of the way a shipping company operates. Basically, on the whole, shipping companies are well run, particularly in the in the tanker sector, and um, a well run ship is less likely to be having accidents. Um, I know that since you know from the 1990s, overall casualties have been coming down, and also injuries to crew as well. I think Andy makes a very valid point there when he hits on the oil industry, the oil tankers, the gas mm. tankers, the chemical tankers, because what's happened um, in the late 1980s, there was a casualty called the Exxon Valdez, and that gave the oil majors a lot of concern, people like Mobile, Exxon, BP, Shell, and they started doing their own inspections of ships, saying that they would not bring a ship into their employment unless they'd inspected it, and it met certain benchmark criteria. There's no question in my mind that the average level of skill and competence and ability on board an oil tanker far outweighs the average on a non-oil tanker and that's very much down to the pressure by the oil majors to meet requirements that they have set. So when you think about requirements and like you've mentioned do you think that there's a risk that perhaps it becomes too heavily regulated? That's always a risk. You feel for masters and chief officers when you're on board a ship there's, there's maybe been a casualty and you arrive on board the ship and there's an oil major doing an inspection, port state controller on board. Uh, I know the oil majors try to avoid conflicting with anything else. Stores are arriving, there's a superintendent on board and you do feel that very often the manning on board just really is not sufficient for all the tasks that especially are being presented to the ship when she's in port. So Andy, over the course of uh, our podcast we're looking at a lot of the developments in, in the industry, such as you know, automation, the cyber security. So from particularly a accident investigation side of it, looking perhaps five or ten years in the future, do you think there's going to be a new trend, a new, a new shift in where instances are going to be occurring or where your job might lead to around the world or problems like that? It's very difficult to, to make that prediction, of course, but clearly technology, the, the curve, is just ramping up steeper and steeper. Um, the extent to which technology is affecting everybody's lives in all sectors of all industries, that very much includes uh, the maritime industry. And the most notable thing that the maritime industry has done recently, perhaps from a point of view as a mariner, that being a navigating mariner as opposed to the engineering variety, um, has been Ectis. There presumably you may well be part of the generation that does not know how to navigate any other way, but then you've still got a lot of, most of the ships are still commanded by people a bit more like me, who um, who are far more comfortable looking out the window and, and drawing lines of bits of paper than we are playing with computers. And so it is quite common, I think, these days to find that um, the people who are most familiar with the core navigation equipment are actually the youngest guys on board. And that can, of course, in certain cultural environments, lead to to quite a challenge. The junior guys need to pick up navigational skills that they might, which might actually be harder for them to do than it was for the, the, more, the older ones when they were younger um, because naturally hand, hands-on was just a more natural way to do things and there needs to be a sort of exchange of information of course because the, um, the more senior people need to learn off the younger ones but there has been um, you know, casualties have, have sort of occurred in which Actis has played a part I'm sure also a lot of casualties have been averted 
because of ECTIS as well. I, I would agree with that completely. Um, I've attended a number of casualties recently where the core feeling is that if ECTIS hadn't been there and there had been a paper chart, the casualty probably wouldn't have happened. One comes to mind of a bulker in the Pacific Ocean where they ripped out a couple of double bottoms. Had they ripped out a third double bottom, the ship may well have been lost. The officer, through no fault of his own, was insufficiently trained in the Ectis and he was almost treating it like a computer game. He was skating past a shallow patch on the Ectis chart by about two cables, believing that would be sufficient. And if you actually looked at the original paper chart, there was a little notation next to the sea mount saying, believed to lie five miles to the southwest. So obviously not correctly charted. But the Ectis gives you a false sense of security that can lead you to believe that you've got a better grasp of the situation. I suppose particularly as a seafarer, like I, you mentioned earlier about my generation yeah. um, and the sort of competencies that we have in terms of electronic nav or technology as a whole. Very much a lull stage or uh, this in-between stage at the moment where we spend about 100 hours of a syllabus looking at celestial navigation, looking at chart work, but then only perhaps 30 or 40 hours of a syllabus looking at electronic nav. When you then go on a ship, I have never sailed on a vessel which has had paper charts, I've always been solely Ectis, and that's certainly something which I believe a lot more seafarers are going to start to experience. So do you think that we need to have a change in the way that seafarers are trained? Traditional skills are no doubt you know, completely invaluable, and we still learn them because we fall back on them, and we have used them. But as a primary source, do you think those numbers perhaps need to switch? The numbers, the way, the way you put those numbers, um, obviously, <laughs> I think you might have a view on that. <laughs> I'll just put the asteroid to one side for a second. You mentioned, I think, chart work. I think it's important to learn what the Ectis is doing for you. How you do that without doing chart work, I don't know. But um, there needs to be a way of, of understanding the fundamentals of navigation and how to conduct it, rather than just looking at a computer. When you're using Ectis, Ectis was designed by people who consider that uh, you only need the global positioning system, um, which of course there are others out there and of course there need to be and once there are then you can move on to your astronav thing. But basically using other means to obtain positions and to, um, to um, navigate, actively navigate, by which of course it's not just obtaining positions, finding out where you were when you took the position, estimating your position, where you're going to be and when you're going to need to turn and that kind of thing, what effect all these elements are having on you. That's what the Ectus is doing for you all the time and giving you a nice little vector. But you do need to understand what that, how that vector is derived so you can work out when it's going horribly wrong. Uh, Ian, do you find that more and more accidents are occurring because of, of an over-reliance on technology? People just staring at a screen and forgetting to look up sometimes? Or? I think I, I, I wouldn't call it an over-reliance. I'd actually... The, the technology is fine if properly used. I think the issue is whereas there are many people out there who are very competent and very good at using the technology and understand the assumptions underlying the information that's displayed to them, there are also a, a group of officers out there who don't have that knowledge and awareness. The, the, the issue is whether the people using that technology have been properly trained and prepared. And it seems to me, and again, the caveat is, of course, I only go on board when there's been a casualty. So what I'm saying is in that context. But the caveat is that very often the people that I'm interviewing seem to be unaware of the 
underlying principles. The very thing Andy was just talking about, that 100 hours of chart work, of astro navigation, they're not understanding position lines, they're not understanding the navigation. A good example with Ectis is that very often now an officer will simply look at where the ship is on the Ectis screen compared to the course line and move the autopilot by a degree or two. And if you ask the officer, were you being set to the north or the south? They simply won't know because all they were doing was keeping it on the line, which means when they have a problem, they actually don't know what sort of cross-track error they can expect uh, from the prevailing conditions. What about automation? Do you think that we need to have a more of a, perhaps a holistic approach to the human and the machine and, 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 and the benefits or disadvantages that it can bring to navigation or marine casualties? Automation is going to affect everybody, especially if they're young. Mm. <laughs> Um, whatever industry uh, they're in. And it seems to me at the moment that perhaps because of um, things related to Actis, that the technology is driving the demand rather than the other way around, fundamentally. Um, the technology happens to lend itself to perform the functions of the highly skilled and responsible um, end of the spectrum. But I'm not seeing <laughs> uh, automated cl hold cleaning uh, mm. and tank cleaning etc 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 or or changing of cylinder of units and en main engines and um, maintenance and all the rest of it um, to the extent that you would simply be able to remove a crew from a ship and until you can remove a crew from a ship then the business case is sort of a bit of a question because as long as you've got to have a crew on the ship then are you going to have a bunch of guys there being all navigated around the world by a computer I know aeroplanes are, probably are flown around the world by computers but they actually People like having two pilots, at least, sober and very coordinated at the front of the cockpit, regardless of what the computer is up to. So you mentioned about the, the aviation industry, and for those listeners that haven't been on a navigational bridge on, on a ship, you will find that you'll have perhaps five or six different manufacturers of technology or navigational equipment, and these are all integrated through you know, a series of computers, shall we say. You then switch that to the aviation industry, where you have you know, the two majors there are Airbus and Boeing, and their cockpits and the technologies in, in those planes are all produced by the same manufacturers, they all work seamlessly together. Ian, do you, do you think that the maritime industry perhaps needs to be considering the same thing? Oh, in an ideal world, I'd love to see that. Yeah. Uh, that, that would be Nirvana. Uh, the, the problem is that the maritime industry is a lot more fragmented than the aviation industry. You, you identify correctly, you've got two, two main producers. You've got endless numbers of shipyards building ships. Um, you can go along the Chinese coast and look at empty fields, and two months later you can go along that same piece of Chinese coast and there's a shipyard there. The challenge that we should be thinking about is less integrated bridges and more how, how to unify kit like Ectis. So as people move from one Ectis to another, their experience of using it, their interface with it is seamless. I think that that would be a more achievable goal and would probably produce quicker and, and, and more obvious results than actually going for a single integrated bridge design, much as we'd see on an Airbus or a Boeing. I think Ian sums that up very well. Clearly, um, we would love to see um, all officers would like to just walk off a ship, go home and then walk their next ship be identical to the one they just left. Um, it's not going to happen um, any time soon um, for the reasons that Ian has just mentioned and therefore um, standardising the equipment which has been getting a lot more varied. Uh, radars used to be there very, very little difference between them. There's a very few number of fundamental controls and it didn't take you long to find them. Charts obviously were the same. 
um, that's not true anymore and so um, people nowadays have got a lot more in way of familiarization to do and that is an increased burden um, on board everybody but particularly the individual um, who is navigating and so the, the more standardization the better I um, quite liked the Nautical Institute's S-Mode idea um, as a principle of having a IMO basically saying, look, if you push a button, we want it to look like this. And then, and the same would, of course, be the case for radars and, and everything else. But Ectis is perhaps the most important piece of bridge equipment these days, particularly as radar is often sort of superimposed upon it. Do you think that there's lessons that we can learn from other industries in terms of making the maritime industry safer? I would say actually there is, but I don't think it's so much technologically based. I think there is a lot that we can still learn from the airline industry. A common cause of maritime casualties is a failure by someone to step in and stop the master from giving an order or giving an order that he's about to give. Airlines spend a lot of money in the simulators getting their chief officers to monitor what the captain is doing and to step in when necessary or even the other way around, giving the chief officer of the plane effectively the con, while the master monitor, what the captain monitors what he's doing because he's more likely to step in. I think, I think for my part, still, there is a greater number of casualties, despite what I said earlier about Ectus, attributable to human error and attributable to a team on a bridge not working as a team and backing each other up than there is purely as a consequence of technological issues. Do you think that a lot of it comes from perhaps the ISM code at all? you think there are failures there or legislation that isn't, isn't cut out or provide enough guidance? What, what Ian was talking about there is bridge team management, bridge resource management, but I think that's a work in progress. With shipping companies as well, they can get involved because it's a cultural thing uh, among the attitude of their officers and when they, um, the superintendents go to the ships and what they want to see. To me, um, that, that's very important. Having, having guys from the sort of management on board reasonably frequently when the ship is doing routine management. So linking it back to the SCCW, again, for listeners, it's the standard for training and certification and watchkeeping for uh, whether you're an you know, engineer or uh, navigator, the levels and the mandatory and minimum requirements that you have to have uh, to be at sea. So do you think internationally there's perhaps um, a shortfall or shortcomings there that the standards vary too much around the world that you have, you know, perhaps Europe and Northwest Europe particularly have very high standards compared to other areas where on paper they can still get officers through when can that lead to more accidents because of the interpretation of the SCCW you think? So there's a significant variance in the quality of officer. Um, I wouldn't necessarily want to attribute it to geographically because um, they, they were very good Indian officers and Filipino officers, um, as well as you know, and, and um, from many other um, seafaring nations. But there is a varied quality, and people need to invest, And um, because an officer emerging from a college is not the, really the finished product, although in theory he is, or she is, they need to be um, developed, and that is where um, the work needs to be done, and that happens with your with your with your employers i think we, we have to look at the stcwm and the, and the ism together and I, I think it's instructive to go back to why it is the ism code exists when andy and i were both first at sea there was no ism code you had you had two two benchmarks and that was the quality of the equipment and the quality of the personnel and that was dealt with by stcw and that was dealt with by class and, and flag regulations and the industry thought as long as you had the right equipment with the right people that was all you needed for a safe operation 
And then in the 1980s, there were a series of casualties, including the Herald of Free Enterprise, where although all the equipment was classed, all the equipment was up to date, everyone on board was properly certified, that ship still sailed with her bow doors open, the decks flooded, she capsized, and there was massive loss of life. And that was the point at which the industry realised, no, we need, we need procedures as well. But each shipping company has to draft its own procedures because we can't mandate the procedures. If we look in the preamble of the ISM code, there's three very important words there, and it refers to the commitment, attitude and motivation of everyone from the highest level to the, the most junior, that includes those ashore. The example that always jumps to my mind is, is regrettably we're still having enclosed space entry deaths. People are going into tanks where there is insufficient oxygen or there's a poisonous atmosphere they are dying and other people are going in to save them and the same thing is happening to them. And the instinctive reaction of a lot of our clients, or my clients certainly, is we need to do more training. We, we, we don't need to do more training. They've been trained. They know they shouldn't be doing it. The challenge for the industry is to find out why it is that people don't have the commitment, the attitude and motivation to do what they know is correct. And we talked earlier about bridge team management and about people working together. The ships that I've been on that I think have the strongest safety culture is where the managers have put in a stop system where anybody on the ship can say stop to stop a job if they perceive that task is being performed in an unsafe manner or not properly prepared for. You mentioned about the training there. Do you, do you think that a lot of people, they see the solutions as more checklists, more procedures, more paperwork. It, it, yes, and it, it, it's quite frustrating because very often what will happen is that an oil major will come up with a particular observation. When they come on board, their, their inspectors produce a list of observations. Those observations really are negative comments, not observations. And the oil major will ask the manager or the owner, what are you going to do about this? And very often the instinctive reaction is we're going to add something to the checklist. And if we're not careful, we become too checklist driven. And the real risk, I think, is that people don't think beyond the checklist. That what, what they don't they don't actually think for themselves as to what what the risks are and how to manage against it because they're being guided by the checklist. Way back when earlier my seagoing days before ISM code that I've never heard of. Um, we made our own checklists because we knew that it would be a bit embarrassing if we sailed with only one steering pump or we forgot to make the anchor ready to fill in and go or whatever. So there was ownership. That's a very important word that Ian used. We knew why we had a checklist. It was a tool that we devised in order to do our job well and the way that we knew we needed to do it. Um, of course, now a checklist is there as part of a safety management system. And that safety management system is itself audited and approved by a flag state or a recognised organisation. And that often happens ashore in the manager's head office. And on top of that, um, the um, if you're in the tanker industry, as Ian mentioned, um, you will get major charterers coming to the office and putting their own requirements on top of the, the, the basic sort of requirement. It can actually box the owner into a bit of a corner and, and limit the amount of scope they have to develop a culture I think a culture is really important when it comes to um, safety management. Absolutely. So when, when you mention about the ship owners perhaps being boxed into a corner, do you think that with the level of maybe checklist um, paperwork or regulation that are put onto seafarers for procedures such as enclosed space entry, do you think that it 
perhaps has a negative impact that it takes away their voices such it takes away that their ability to voice concerns or say this checklist isn't right or something needs to be improved how, how do you think you can build that culture when you're working with so many cultures so two, you you struggled on two things there one was the um, the ability to feedback on on a checklist to say and the ISM code has right from the start have within it the the, the function that to occur um, in, in the form of the master's feedback of course you do need the feedback to go up to the master and for him to own it and push it up the line and also that a company should be in, tuned in to the seafarers who are using the checklist but we have to address this issue of lack of ownership and the one way to try to rejoin the ownership or to regain ownership is for um, it to be seen and to be obvious to people that if they do have a, an issue with the checklist um, or with any tool that they can um, feed back to the company, and it might be it might be um, influenced and changed. Yeah. So yeah, you mentioned also the the cultural mm. aspect of it, um, and cultural awareness is an important part. And there, there are um, various cultures around the world who approach hierarchy in different ways. It can be difficult to get people of certain cultures, particularly if you've got um, you know, um, senior officers and very junior ratings from particular cultures it can be very hard for them much harder than we appreciate in the in as a western culture mm. and that's that's as much a problem for the shore side as for the for the um for the guys at sea or when you think of shipping the the backbone of shipping comes from the the indian and the filipino seafaring community they're a huge proportion of the total number but when you look at maritime legislation checklists it is produced by the IMO, which uh, which then in turn is produced by the United Nations in one of their official languages, and Tagalog, the language of the Philippines, and the various languages that are spoken in India. The maritime legislation isn't published in that. So for people who have different cultures, they have two jobs. First, their job is to translate it into a language or a way which they can understand. And then secondly, is to apply it. But in doing those two jobs, there's a, a real sort of risk that information can slip through the gaps and within applying something which is perhaps not what it was initially intended to be applied as so do you think that it's something which should be considered by the IMO? My experience actually is that but both um, of those nat- nationalities tend to be able to speak English and then if you look at multicultural crews the common language does tend to be English um, because there will be lots of languages being spoken but the one that's common is English and the thing perhaps you need to watch out for as management is if you have a predomination of another language that isn't English and the ship is however designed to run in English then that could be an issue for the crew on board who are not speaking that particular language. And where you get a number of crew from different nationalities the temptation just simply to talk operationally to your fellow countrymen in your common language and not the common language of the vessel should be avoided wherever possible. So linking it back to the initial point, and we, we made links there to lessons that we can learn from other industries. From the accidents that you've investigated, do you feel that like there's a, a recurrent sort of shortfalling, uh, an area which really needs to be addressed, or which perhaps isn't being addressed currently by the maritime industry? I mean, I mean, for my part, there is. We, we, we've talked about uh, in the context of navigation with Ectus the over reliance on the information and understanding of the assumptions. We've talked about the need for watch officers, as Andy said, to, to understand how how chart work procedure works, because that underlines your understanding of the ECTIS and what's there on the screen in front of you. And I think we've also talked about communication failures, uh, where there's a failure to communicate. And I think there's a wealth of work for the industry to do there. 
and I would I would go back to the the comment I made about the uh, ISM code and commitment, attitude, and motivation, and that's been largely ignored. And there's a reason for that because it's very easy to audit a procedure to make sure it's been followed because that's an objective yes no was this done or not commitment attitude and motivation is very subjective and I'd say it's almost impossible to address that in in an auditing context to say whether that's been successful or not that industry has a challenge in my view in the context of ISM and STCW it's not the training on what to do it's the education that people understand why it is they must do what they've been told on each occasion or what they've been trained to do on each occasion that they do it. And that, that that's a massive challenge for us and made more difficult by the fact that we talked about developing a culture within a company. We live in an environment now where a lot of people do one contract with one company, move away, come back to another company, then go away, then come back to a third company. And it's very hard to create that culture Whereas Andy, with who he sailed with and who I sailed with as a cadet, we had 20, 30, 40 years of experience ahead of us on the bridge that were showing us this is how we do it here. This is, this is how we do the positions. This is how we do the charts. This is how we do the logbook entries. That, to a certain extent, not completely, but to a certain extent has been lost. With the marine casualties linking it to geopolitics and instability around the world and looking at things like war or political instability like we've seen this week when we're recording in you know, like Ukraine. Are, are these are these other things which need to be factored in particularly by maybe insurers, lawmakers, uh, which will make the sort of the investigation or the lessons to be learned from marine casualties more? It's pretty difficult for them to, to factor in geopolitics more than they already do. They have the sort of war risk type arrangements. Um, obviously, if you have a casualty in that sort of area, that's very challenging for everyone involved to deal with. Sadly, the, 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 the things you just mentioned, are they're an issue for the seafarers in the first place. But when it comes to us, casualty investigating type people, normally the, the, everyone just gets everything out of the danger zone before we get involved, thankfully. Not really that helpful. <laughs> the, the insurers will always <coughs> respond to the record. Uh, so if, if the cost of the claims from a particular owner goes up, then the owner is going to see an increase in the premium. If the costs of the claims in a particular part of the world go up, then owners trading in those particular parts of the world, the underwriters are going to respond by putting the premiums up. Um, the most recent sort of clear example, I suppose, of danger that seafarers will be aware for is um, something that's now thankfully pretty much gone is Somali piracy. It, it's an interesting question. Um, from the context of a lawyer, for example, as Annie says, you, you, you generally wouldn't be going to an area where that exists simply because your own insurers wouldn't let you go there. So Ian, particularly from a legal aspect, do you, do you think that the law or the insurance is keeping up with the changes, the new threats, the new developing issues around the world, whether that's you know, automation, whether that's cyber security on board ships? Is it, is it too slow moving compared to other industries? Well, automation, we're way behind because... Uh, Andy made the point that there are some coastal voyages of automated vessels in Scandinavia and the reason they can go ahead is because they're wholly domestic voyages and all the IMO's legislation, SOLAS, MARPOL etc is targeted at vessels engaged in international voyages so it's quite legitimate for an individual state government to give an exemption but we, we're still required to have a certain number of people on board a ship we're still required to have a fire drill and a boat drill at certain intervals now clearly you can't have that on an automated ship because there's no one on board to do it but you would be in breach of regulations for not doing it. Very perverse, 
and the IMO has to catch up and, and those making the laws have to catch up with that. Um, cyber risk, yeah, I think, I think we're quite horribly behind the curve, curve at the moment and it, it will take a couple of incidents. I think ship management has always been slightly more reactive than proactive. Um, that, that's the nature of the beast. Um, as far as the law keeping up, that's a very interesting question because what makes a ship seaworthy is dependent upon the standards of the time. So if we look recently at, again, Somali piracy, if you go back to the early part of Somali piracy, very few ships had citadels where the crew could retreat to, and a vessel probably wouldn't be unseaworthy for not having a citadel. Whereas if you, if you roll forward five years, when the majority of ships had citadels, the lack of one might render a ship unseaworthy. But we'd never know whether that was the case or not until the matter came before a court. Yeah. And there may be a three, four, five-year time lag between the loss and it coming before the court as to whether we know that the court would consider that to be an unseaworthy vessel. And there's a further problem, since many of these issues are resolved by arbitrations, and arbitration is by its nature private, and the results of an arbitration are not published, it may be that there are arbitrators who are saying this ship is seaworthy or not seaworthy for this reason or the other, but the rest of the industry won't know about that. So it's a very valid point because it's wrong in principle that you know it should take a disaster such as um, Herald of Free Enterprise to make a change in the law. So uh, particularly with cybersecurity, you know, mentioning that it's clear that law and the industry is lagging behind. I think do you, you know would you? I suppose you've already answered the question, but you agree that you know we we could be facing perhaps very uh, complex uh, legal battles because perhaps the current state of the law or legislation is too ambiguous in terms of uh, who's at fault when it comes to casualties. I, th I think we, we aren't particularly proactive about dealing with threats which are new to us. I talked right at the very beginning about the MAIB and their task is to investigate a casualty in order to ascertain what could be learned from that casualty. And for their reports very often end up making recommendations to the IMO. And that in turn will occasionally end up to things like MARPOL and SOLAS being modified to take into account those recommendations. Now, the IMO is a political organisation. There are a lot of vested interests there uh, with competing agendas. I think if you would go to the IMO and say, we believe this could be a threat in the problem because of this, that or the other, and we need legislation, you would probably find it a lot more difficult to take that, to chart that through the process than if you actually have an accident that you can point to, to say, we need to introduce legislation in order to prevent this happening again. So unhappily, I think primarily we're an industry where we respond to things that go wrong after they've gone wrong in order to prevent it happening again, rather than spend a lot of time working out what might go wrong. That said, of course, the ISM code is supposed to do that, and responsible owners should themselves be looking at that. And I've been talking recently about GDPR and cybersecurity, and pointing out in the seminars I've been doing, I've been pointing out, well, in reality, although the IMO has now said you need, we need cybersecurity in your manuals as part of your ISM code by the early 2020s, the reality is that no resolution's been passed for that. So I think the industry is very much 
throwing, rightly or wrongly, throwing that back on the ship owner and the ship manager to say, well, it, it's actually your task. The ISM code always, already requires you to identify and mitigate against risk. Um, and indeed, the whole industry, I suppose, um, could well be at a sort of um, a different sort of risk in a way because of the way that we tend to react rather than be proactive. As a final thought, the ISM code said in, although it's slightly dated now, but 2005, after a review of the ISM, of the ISM code, they said that where, where the code is embraced as a positive step towards efficiency uh, through a safety culture, tangible positive benefits are evident. So do you think that that statement is as true today as it was back in 2005? Do you, do you think that we're still uh, implementing and adopting this legislation as a, as a positive uh, step towards improving safety? Or do you think we're at a risk now of becoming sort of paperwork fatigue, increased pressure, which results in marine casualties through other avenues? I think the statement more or less is still true in that the code, well, the code itself is really simple. Um, it's just the way that we're implementing it and um, the way that we're auditing it and monitoring it. And of course, the, the, the side of the issue is that we need evidence. Assurance requires evidence. Um, and that I'm thinking particularly about the um, vetting uh, that goes on with, um, in particular, the tanker sector. I think that we could also learn from the tanker sector by not making the same mistakes as well, because the vetting has side effects. And those side effects are to reinforce the idea that a checklist on board a ship, rather than it being a tool, rather than there be any ownership whatsoever, is in fact there to look really nice when the vetting inspector comes on board the ship and sees a nice row of ticks and a nice signature at the bottom. These are side effects of a system that, on the whole, has been beneficial. So we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. We want to bring the rest of the industry up towards the quality of the tanker sector, but without the side effect that I'm just talking about, because the effect of that side effect could be, in the worst case, could be you end up with a parallel universe. So you end up with lots of lovely little forms that are there for inspectors, but that's not really what's happening. In that case, what's the management going to do? Because the management won't know what's happening on their own ships if that occurs, and that's a very dangerous situation to get themselves into. So Ian, and your final thoughts on how the maritime industry could potentially adapt to the new changes, the new threats that we, we might face over the next few years? I, th I think there needs to be, we can't rely solely on the legislators. I think just thinking about the ISM code for a moment, I think it is, it is still fit for purpose. There's three things I would say about ISM and, and ships. When you go on board a ship, you get an instant feeling as to whether it's a well-run, well-managed ship. And there are three aspects that I look at, and that's, do the crew buy into the ISM code? The second is, is there a good relation between those ashore and on board the ship? Are they working as one team? Do the superintendents see themselves as a resource to help the management team on board trade the vessel within the constraints of the budget and other things? And the third item is what's the crew retention like? And I've never seen any ship where two of these things exist, buy into the ISM code, retention and good relations with the shore exist, without the third one. And it has to be that those three are, are the benchmarks of good ship management. And as unfortunate as it is, it is the ship managers and the ship owners that, with the speed of change, now have to identify what those changes are, what the risks are, and what they need to do to mitigate against those risks. Because um, the, the, the legislation, by its very nature of the consultative process that it has to go through, cannot keep up. I mean, it's interesting, I think, with Ectis and before that, ARPA, 
a lot of the legislation was driven by the manufacturers saying, this is what we can make this machine do. Yes, why don't you use it? Yes, yeah. so why, why don't you make it a legal requirement that there must be something on a ship's bridge that can do this? Yes. So rather than being driven by need, rather than sitting down and assessing what is the need, do we need a closest point of approach, do we need to time the closest point of approach, uh, and all these other things. So the nearest sub- It was the other way around. The manufacturers said, we can produce software that will do this, and the IMO is up, that's a good idea, we'll make that mandatory. Yeah, so I suppose you've got two things. You've got aspirational regulations where the technology does not exist, and then the other way around where the technology does exist, but we don't necessarily want it. But the, somebody persuades the IMO that we should have it. So that brings us to the end of our episode on marine casualties. I've been joined by Andy Bell from Stevenson Harwood and Ian McLean from Hill Dickinson. Thank you for coming on the show. Pleasure. Pleasure. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to the Shipping Exchange. We hope you enjoyed the show, and if you did, it would be great if you could leave us a comment and subscribe for future episodes. You can also find us across all of social media and at our website, and the links can be found below in the bio. And we hope that you can join us again soon.